The following message is brought to you by Berean Bible Church and may be used and distributed free of charge. For more free audio, video, and text resources, be sure to visit www.bereanbiblechurch.org. Thank you. Good morning. I want to welcome you this morning to Berean Bible Church. We are, for the past three weeks, have been looking at the subject of preterism and spiritual gifts. Now, let me just define my title here. Preterism is an eschatological view which sees the second coming of Christ as a past event that happened in the year A.D. 70. Most people, when you say that, they think you're saying A.D. 70. A.D. 70. And was a judgment and a removal of the old covenant system, the old heavens and earth, and was the establishment of the kingdom of God, the new heavens and the new earth, which is the new covenant. Now, we hold this view because if you are familiar with the New Testament, Yeshua said that He would come back soon. He said He would come back quickly, shortly. To that generation He was speaking to, He said He would come back while some of them were still alive, In the first century. And he did. We believe him. And there's no mention anywhere in the scripture of a third coming. So that's preterism. Now spiritual gift, what is that? I have defined spiritual gift as a God-given capacity through which the Holy Spirit supernaturally ministers to the body of Christ. Now I get this from what Paul said in 1 Corinthians. He says, to each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. This is what a spiritual gift is. It's a manifestation of the Spirit of God. It's not your normal, natural talent, your natural ability. It is supernatural. Now, it is my belief that when the Old Covenant ended, so did spiritual gifts. During the transition period, the second exodus, which ran from Pentecost to AD 70, the church was growing from infancy to maturity. And Yahweh worked in the growing church through these miraculous gifts. He spoke to his prophets to bring the church to maturity. A spiritual house was being built for Yahweh to dwell in. And just as the miraculous stopped at the end of the first exodus when they got in the land, they also stopped at the end of the second exodus in AD 70. Now, I'm well aware of the fact that there are some preterists who disagree with me on the gift's ending. That's nothing new. People disagree about everything, okay? But here's what I want you to understand. I'm getting my views on this from exegesis, not from experience. Because I'm hearing from people, you know, texts, emails that, well, this so-and-so happened to my friend, and how do you explain that? I don't. I'm not trying to explain it. Are you saying that because this happened to your friend, that that means spiritual gifts still exist? God can do miracles. God can do anything He wants to. We're talking about the spiritual gifts that people had. Specific gifts for specific purposes. So, again, I'm not trying to discount your experience. People do get healed. Miracles happen. We'll talk about that in a minute. But I'm drawing what I'm saying here from exegesis of the Scripture. This is what the Bible says. It says these gifts would end. And I dare say that they have ended. Um, You know, we have people today who say they have certain gifts, but they sure don't line up anything like the New Testament. All right? The Scriptures, I believe, teach that when the perfect arrived, the gifts ended. And in our second study, we looked at the gift of prophecy and saw that the Scriptures said it would end at the destruction of the Jewish temple. If there were prophets today... Because a prophet is, was a mouthpiece of God. They were speaking for God. So if there are prophets today, then the Bible's not complete. And every time a prophet speaks, we've got to get over there with our pen and try to get down what they said and then put it in the back of the Bible, add an addendum, you know, because they're speaking God's Word. Thank God we don't have to do that. That would be unending. All right? We have the Word of God. It is completed. It is finished. So prophecy ended When the Jewish temple was destroyed, we looked at that from the book of Daniel. Then last week we looked at the gift of tongues and we saw that it was to end when the perfect came. Now, we talked about this last week, tongues, you know, it's not an ecstatic language. But if you think it is and you're doing it, 
you just go right ahead. Best if you do it at home in your closet, you know, because, you know, you say it's a private prayer language. And I'm like, if you're praying in private, why do you need to say anything? God hears your thoughts. He knows your thoughts. You don't have to verbalize it. God knows what you're thinking before you even think it. So if you want a private prayer language, just talk to God (laughs) in your head. All right. Well, this morning, I want us to look at the gift of miracles. And I want to see what the scripture says about them. All right. In 1 Corinthians 12.10, it says, To another, the working of miracles. Now, you know, the, the many churches today have a little test that you can take, and, you know, they go down, and you find out what your spiritual gift is. You know, you answer all these questions, and they'll tell you if your spiritual gift. I want to know if anybody qualifies to have the spiritual gift of miracles. You know, usually, you know, you got helps, you got, you know, some nebulous stuff that no one can really verify. But, you know, the gifts of healing, I, I know people claim to have that. You know, Ernest Angeli claims to have that. He can heal the nicotine demon out, get you get the nicotine demon out of you. I've seen him do it. <laughs> Not really. All right. So this is one of those things that the gift of miracles, do people have that? Do we see that happening today? Well, we'll talk about it and see. Then you can compare and see if you think maybe this test that qualifies different gifts, if somebody has this gift. In 1 Corinthians 12, 28, he mentions it again. He says, God has a Pointed in the church, first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helps, administration, and the various kinds of tongues. And there seems to be an order of importance here. And you notice tongues are down there at the end of this. One thing I want you to see here is these gifts mentioned here only appear in the list in 1 Corinthians. The other list, there's no mention of these gifts. And 1 Corinthians is one of the earliest books. Well, in 1 Corinthians 12.10, the text reads this way, to another, the working of miracles. The Greek word used here for miracles is dunamis, which means power, inherent abilities, where we get our term dynamite. It's used of works of supernatural origin and character, such as could not be produced by natural agent or means. The Greek word here for working is energo. And it means to work in, to be active, to be operative. Verse 6 uses this word in connection with God working. And then verse 11 uses it of the Holy Spirit working in the gifts. So when you put together dunamis and in ergo, they describe the gift as active operation of the power of God in an individual's life, giving inherent ability to perform supernatural works. We see this throughout the New Testament. All right? Miracles is dunamis, all right? Power, ability. And then we find two other words in Scripture that are used for miracles, and they are the word sign, which is the Greek semion. Semion is used as a token, an indication of the near presence or the working of God. They're signs and pledges of something beyond themselves. Another word used for miracles in the Greek is the word terra, which often translated wonder. And it's basically used to indicate the astonishment that the gift produces. In other words, you see this and you're like, you just wonder. All right, that's where terra comes from. All three of these words are used in 2 Corinthians 12.12 of the Apostles. It says, the signs of a true apostle. Now, the word true is not in the text. All right? The the translators add that to help you out. They they really think they're helping us by doing this stuff, and they're really not. Just put the words in there that are in the Bible, and we'll figure it out. They want you to know these aren't the signs of a false apostle. Okay? These are the signs of a true apostle. They were performed among you with utmost patience, with signs and wonders and mighty works. So the apostles demonstrated this, and we see that in scriptures. They were characterized of an apostle. Acts 2 uses all three of these words in connection with Christ. Acts 2.22, Men of Israel, hear these words, Yeshua of Nazareth, a man, attested to you by God with mighty works, dunamis, wonders, that's Terah, and signs, Samiah, that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. Now, let me ask you something here. How did Yeshua do these miracles? Was he using the gift of miracles? How did he do them? Okay. 
I think the typical answer is people want to say, well, he's God. Well, that's not the right answer, okay? Because Yeshua is our example, right? As our example, he's our example because he walked as a man on this earth in the power of the Holy Spirit. And as the man, Christ laid aside the attributes of deity, all right? Now, he didn't divest himself of those. He is God. He couldn't divest himself. But he laid aside the prerogatives. And from his own will, he didn't use the attributes to benefit himself. They were not surrendered, but voluntarily restricted in keeping with the Father's plan. He gave up any independent exercise of certain divine attributes in living among men with our human limitations. So he would become truly man, because dependence is a necessary characteristic of real humanity. Christ lived on this earth as a man in dependence upon the Holy Spirit. He didn't walk this earth using the powers of His deity. So God demonstrated through the Spirit who He was, but He's not operating in His deity. He's operating in His humanity. So these three terms are used of Christ and the apostles during the introduction of Christianity in the first century. Now, a miracle can be described by all of these three words that we talked about. But let's define what the Bible means by a miracle. What exactly is a miracle? Because we use this term pretty casually today, don't we? For example, a wife might say, we had a miracle in our house. My husband got out of the lazy boy and helped me do the dishes. Now that's, you know, that might be out of the ordinary, but it isn't a miracle. And I know some of you wives say, well, they might want to argue with that because as far as they're concerned, it would take a supernatural act of God to get some of these men out of their lazy boy. And listen, men, if your wife feels that way about you, something's not right, okay? <laughs> you need to work on that. Something is not right because that, that shouldn't be considered a miracle, all right? It should not be. A miracle is a supernatural intrusion into the natural law which can have no other explanation than that God is acting. Okay, that's the only explanation. There's no logical, there's no rational, there's no scientific explanation of here's how this happened. Let me give you an example of this. In Elmer Bendener's book called The Fall of the Fortress, he describes one of the bombing runs over Germany that they did, and he writes this. He says, our B-17 was barraged by flak from Nazi anti-aircraft guns. He goes, that was not unusual. But on this particular occasion, our gas tanks were hit. Later, as I reflected on the miracle, remember, he's seeing, okay, this is a miracle, the miracle of a 20-millimeter shell piercing the fuel tank without touching off an explosion. Our pilot, Bon Fox, told me it was not quite that simple. On the morning following the raid, Bon had gone down to our crew chief for that shell as a souvenir of unbelievable luck. See, these shells are supposed to explode when they hit. That's how they're designed. And so if it hit the fuel tank, it would have blown up. All right, they're gone. Blew them out of the air. The crew chief said that there wasn't just one shell, but 11 had been found in the fuel tank. 11 unexploded shells where only one was sufficient to blast us out of the sky, he said. It was as if the sea had parted for us. Again, this is a miracle, right? Even after 35 years, so awesome an event leaves me shaken, especially after I heard the rest of the story from Bond. He was told that the shells had been sent to the armorers to be defused. The armorers told them that intelligence had picked them up. They could not say why at the time, but Bond eventually sought out the answer. He said, apparently, when the armorers opened each of those shells... They found no explosive charge. Not one of the 11 had explosives in it. They were clean, he says, as a whistle, and just as harmless. Empty? He said, well, not all of them. One contained a carefully rolled piece of paper. On it was a scrawl in Czech. The intelligence peoples scoured our base to find a man who could read Czech. Eventually, they found one to decipher the note. It sent us marveling. Translated, the note read, this is all we can do to help for now. See, 
they had made sure those shells weren't empty. They, there was no explosive charge, so when they hit, they didn't blow the thing up. There was no intrusion here into the natural law, but it seemed that way to them. You know, circumstances can accommodate for many things, but a miracle can only be attributed to God. Now, let me make this clear. I believe in miracles. I believe I am one because I was born again. And I believe the new birth is a miracle. It's a supernatural act of God. It's not something natural. It's not something you can do on your own. God gives men new life. That's a miracle. And, and I don't think God's limited today to not do miracles because the gifts are gone. That doesn't limit God. Well, I can't do that anymore. I used to heal people, but now the gift's gone, so I guess I'm stuck. No. The person with the gift is no longer operable. These were a first century occurrence. But God can still do what He wants to do, and He does heal people, all right? The ten plagues that Yahweh brought on the Egypt, they were miracles. A lot of people say, oh, this was nat." No, you never saw a natural occurrence like that, okay? As was the dividing of the Red Sea, they walked across on dry land. The provision of manna, that was a miracle. Every day they go out there, there's manna. The quail. The entrance into Jericho, they're marching around the city, they blow the horns and it just collapses. That's a miracle. Well, they said the horns were so loud, the vibration broke. No, it was a miracle, people. All right? The sun standing still, that was a miracle. The fire falling from heaven to consume the sacrifice on Mount Carmel, that was a miracle. Let me show you a miracle in the Bible. 2 Kings 6, 5 and 7. But as one was felling a log... His axe head fell into the water, and he cried out, Alas, my master, it was borrowed. Then the man of God said, Where did it fall? When he showed him the place, he cut off a stick, and he threw it in there, and made the iron float. And he said, Take it up. So he reached out his hand, and he took it. This is a miracle. The natural law of density and buoyancy are suspended, and the iron axe head floats. Now, the word borrowed here is the Hebrew word sha'el, which is better translated begged. See, the prophet's pupil had begged the axe because from his poverty, he's unable to buy one. This is why the loss was so painful to him. Now, the majority of miracles recorded in the Bible were acts of mercy and compassion. It's not just a show. Look at this. Watch this great thing. No, most of them are acts of mercy and compassion like this one. This guy had borrowed this. It floats. Now, you got some people who say this is real, isn't really a miracle. You know, Elijah just took this stick and it made a spear and he threw it and it happened to go right into the head of the axe and stuck in there and then the whole thing helped it float up. That's pretty impressive, but that's not what happened, okay? People like to do away with miracles because they just... They want to discount God, all right? Like William Barclay, you know, when Yeshua walked on water, he said there was exceptionally dense lily pads in that area. I'd like to see you walk on lily pads, okay? <laughs> I'd like to see that. We see a lot of miracles, though, in the life of Christ. Turning water into wine. That's a pretty good miracle, right? Walking on the water. Stilling the storm. Feeding the 5,000. Supplying tax money. From the mouth of a fish. Go catch a fish. The tax money will be in the fish's mouth. This one I love. Teleporting a boat to shore full of people. I mean, they're out in the, in the sea. Yeshua gets on the boat and it says, immediately, they're at shore. That would be cool. <laughs> but those are miracles. They're supernatural intrusions into the natural law. In the strict sense, miracles are differ- differentiated from healings. All right, there's a gift of healing, there's a gift of miracles. Now, healings are miracles, all right? But not all miracles are healings, so they are differentiated. Now, in our first message on preterism and spiritual gifts, I said that miracles are not indiscriminately strewn through every page of the Bible. People just think, the Bible's a book of miracles. No, there's large periods of history where there's no miracles. We find miracles grouped in three great periods in history, Moses and Joshua, Miracles happened then. Elijah and Elisha. We just talked about Elisha, okay, and the iron floating, a period of miracles. And then Christ and the apostles. And there are gaps in between these periods of hundreds of years where we don't see any miracles. 
What's the purpose of miracles in the Bible? Well, the introduction of new revelation brought the need of miracles to authenticate the message and the messengers. Miracles were the testimony of God that those bringing in the new revelations were indeed His official representatives. Yeshua did three different types of miracles. He did healing, and I'm including raising the dead in this, okay? That's a good healing, right? If you're dead and you get alive, that's a healing, all right? Um, Miracles of nature. We talked about this, calming the sea, creating fish and loaves, causing fish to go into Peter's net, walking on the water, teleporting a boat full of people. The Gospels are full of these. They were signs pointing to the reality of Yeshua's constant claim to be God. And then casting out demons. Now, those are miracles we saw Christ do. Now, the apostles also did miracles, but they did two types of miracles. All right? Which one of these couldn't the apostles do? You only got three. It's Do what? No. Miracles in nature. All right? They did not do that. As far as miracles of nature, apart from Peter walking on the water, but Christ called him to come out, come to me, there's no indication in the New Testament that anyone did this other than Yeshua. Now, they did healings, including raising the dead, and they cast out demons. Now, since healing and raising the dead are covered under the gift of healing, and since they did no miracles of nature, it seems to me that the gift of miracles was primarily the supernatural ability to cast out demons. Think about that for a minute. That's what this gift was, primarily. All right, The gift of dealing with the demonic world. In Luke 4.36, And they were all amazed and said to one another, What is this word? For with authority and power, dunamis, He commands the unclean spirits, and they come out. Unclean here is from the Greek word akathartos, which in a sense refers to evil. This was an evil spirit, a demon. In Matthew 9, 32-34, it says, And they were going away. Behold, a demon-oppressed man who was mute was brought to him. And when the demon had been cast out, the mute man spoke. And the crowds marveled, saying, Never was anything like this seen in Israel. But the Pharisees said, He casts out demons by the prince of demons. All right, now here we've got this word demon, which is the Greek daimonion. And according to Thayer, this means a divine power, deity, divinity. So here we have this demon and demon-possessed people that are being dealt with. Now, Before we go on, we need to park here for a minute and try to understand what exactly is a demon or an evil spirit. What's a demon? Where do they come from? Now, many theologians and Bible experts have traditionally taught that demons are simply fallen angels. I'm sure you've heard that. But the Bible never really offers a point-blank explanation of where demons come from. But the Jewish texts in between the Testaments actually have a clear view and answer to where demons come from, and that is they say that demons are disembodied spirits of the dead Nephilim from Genesis 6. So let's, let's look at this, all right? Genesis 6, it says, When men began to multiply on the face of the land, and the daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw the daughters of men were attractive. All right, the sons of God here is referring to gods. Divine beings. These divine beings are looking down on earth and they're saying, whoa, those are some hot-looking women down there, okay? I mean, they're just, they're attracted to these women. And so they took as their wives any they chose. Then Yahweh said, my spirit shall not abide with man forever, for he is flesh, his day shall be 120 years. Now, the term sons of God is used here, is used in verse 2 and in verse 4. These are rebellious divine beings from Yahweh's heavenly host. Daniel calls them watchers. They've taken the form of masculine, human-like creatures, and these gods married women of the human race. All right? Thus violating the heavenly, earthly division that Yahweh had established. And then the hybrid offspring of this union 
are giants called Nephilim. So gods came down to man, procreated with man, and then you have an offspring that's half man, half God, Nephilim. Genesis goes on in chapter 6, say, The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterwards, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men, and they bore children to them. These were mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. Now, we've got a teaching on Genesis 6. If you're confused, you want to look more into it, go into that series on Genesis 6, and we deal with what exactly is going on here. But the Nephilim were giants with physical superiority. And therefore, they established themselves as men of renown for their physical power and military might. The meaning of the biblical word Nephilim has been a matter of unending controversy in church history. I mean, people have been fighting over this word from the beginning. The word is still not translated in most Bibles into English. They just transliterated it, Nephilim. That's the Hebrew, so we just call it Nephilim. We don't try to explain even what it is. While word studies have produced numerous suggestions for the meaning of this term, the biblical definition of this word comes from its only other instance in Scripture. You know, that's the idea of let Scripture interpret Scripture. Nephilim is used in other places. Let's go look at where else it's used. It's used in Numbers. And here we find out what Nephilim are. And there we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak, who came from the Nephilim. And we seem to ourselves like grasshoppers. And so we seem to them. What's that tell you about Nephilim? They're big. <laughs> okay? We seem like grasshoppers to them. They're huge, all right? It gives the impression that the Nephilim here are a race of giant superhumans who are the product of this divine invasion of earth. Now, the two passages quoted above are the only two places in the Bible where the Hebrew word Nephilim is used. But what would surprise, I think, some Bible readers is that these are not the only places where Nephilim are talked about in Scripture. Nephilim, the idea is a theological thread that begins in Genesis 6 and goes all the way through to the New Testament. So what does the Hebrew word Nephilim mean? Well, some scholars looking at the root word claim that the word means fallen ones because that's what the Hebrew means, to fall. So they say these are the fallen ones. But here's the problem. <clears throat> the Septuagint, which is often quoted by the New Testament authors as authoritative, translates this word as giants. All right? So we have to ask ourselves, did those ancient Hellenized Jews not know the true meaning of the word? Or did they know something that we don't? See, most all the ancient Jewish sources understood this term to mean giant. And that fits with Numbers 13 here. There are also some Second Temple Jewish texts that tell us that they were giants. First of all, Jubilees 5.1 it says, and when the children of men began to multiply on the surface of the earth, and daughters were born to them, that the angels of the Lord saw that they were good to look at, and they took the wives for themselves from this sound familiar? From all of those who they chose, and they bore children for them, and they were the giants. Alright? Now Enoch says that the flood was sent because of the watchers. The voluntary sexual transgressions of the women with the watchers, this is a violation of heaven and earth, which caused the humans to share in the blame with this thing. So the wickedness of men was their sexual union with these watchers. The Nephilim, and they're also called Rephim uh, in the Tanakh, are already in the land when Abraham came to the promised land. They represent an attempt on the part of demonic powers to derail the divine program of bringing a Redeemer into the world. See, they're trying to corrupt the human race. So the Lord can't be born as a man. They wanted to corrupt it. I think that's the whole plan here. All right, so basically demons are second-generation divine beings. First Enoch says this, And now the giants who are produced from the spirits of flesh shall be called evil spirits upon the earth, and on the earth shall be their dwelling. Evil spirits have proceeded from their bodies because they are born from men and from the holy watchers is their beginning and primal origin. They shall be evil spirits on the earth and evil spirits they shall be called. 
So the spirits were once bodily informed in the Nephilim, because the Nephilim are half men, half God. When they die, because men die, the spirit lives on. These are what are demons. All right, and these demons seek, wreak havoc on the earth. They're constantly trying to find a body to inhabit. Enoch 15, 11 through 16, 1 says this, And the spirits of the giants afflict, oppress, destroy, attack, do battle, and work destruction on the earth and cause trouble. They take no food, but nevertheless hunger and thirst. They cause offenses. And these spirits shall rise up against the children of men and against the women. So these spirits are going to rise up. They're going to cause problems because they have proceeded from them. And at the death of the giants, spirits will go out and shall destroy without incurring judgment. So at the death, when these Nephilim die, the spirits go out. Their body dies, but these spirits are roaming the earth. What we need to understand here, and you're saying, well, these are second temple texts. What do they mean to us? Everything. This is the context of the New Testament. We need to understand that. The Second Temple literature. All biblical writers were familiar with and influenced by these writings. They even quoted them. The context of the Bible is the people who produced it. And the people who produced it were familiar with these texts. So we need to consider... And think about this like a first century Jew would. we got to have the supernatural worldview in our heads when we read through the Bible and understand this is what, where it came from. All right, now we know what demons are. Let's continue to look at Christ's power over them. All right, they're the spirits of the dead Nephilim roaming the earth. They're demons. Luke 6, 17, 19 says, And he came down with them and stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples, and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon who came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured. And all the crowd sought to touch him for power, dunamis, came out and he healed them. So here we have un- people who have these unclean spirits and he's healing them, he's getting rid of them. And we continually find Yeshua casting out demons by His power. So what is the gift of miracles? I believe the gift of miracles was a primary, the supernatural and instantaneous ability to cast out demons. Well, I wouldn't limit it to that, but I think that's its primary use. Cast out demons. So Yeshua entrusted this same power to His disciples as they went out on their missions for Him. We see the disciples using the gift of power on certain occasions. But by and far, the apostles used this gift to defeat Satan by casting out demons. Matthew 10.8 Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse leopards, cast out demons. You receive without paying, give without pay. So he's saying, I want you guys to go out and I want you to take power over this demonic world and cast these things out. Acts 5.16 The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. Acts 8, 5-8 says, Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them Christ. When they heard him and saw the signs that he did, remember this is a sign, is a word for miracle, for unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them. And many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in the city. So they're casting out demons. They're healing sickness. This is a spiritual gift, a power, supernatural power. The main thrust of the gift of miracles, to me, seems to be the casting out of demons, getting victory over the spirit world. In Acts 16, 16, it says, As we were going to the place of prayer... We were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. This girl, and the text tells us it's a young girl, Luke says has a spirit of divination. Now, the Greek here literally reads, she had a spirit, a python. And that's the same word for a python snake here. 
This referred to the legendary snake in Greek mythology that guarded the Delphic Oracle in central Greece. Now, Apollo supposedly killed this snake, and the snake's spirit dwelled in the priestesses there. So again, we see the same idea. He kills them, the snake's dead, the python's dead, but the python's spirit is going into the priestesses. So the python spirit referred to a spirit that enabled someone to predict the future. Such people generally spoke with their mouth closed, uttering words completely out of their control. They were known as ventriloquists. All right, we see this in Isaiah 8.19. And when they say to you, inquire of the mediums and the necromancers who chirp and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? Should they inquire of the dead on behalf of the living? Now, the Septuagint words here for chirp and mutter are from the Greek word that means ventriloquist. So the term python became synonymous with ventriloquist. Ventriloquists were called pythons. And the word fortune-telling at the end of the verse here comes from a root word that meant frenzy. So they would go into almost this frenzy, this fit-like, and become totally disoriented, and they would give some prediction. Now, the girl was one of the thousand priestesses of Delphi who were called pythons because they were seen as plugged into Apollo. She was seen as having contact with the gods and being able to foresee the future. Now, it seems that this slave girl could really tell the future because she was bringing her owners a lot of money. But the power came from an evil spirit. The girl was possessed by a demon. All right, the text goes on to say she's following Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. Do you really want a demon announcing your... <laughs> That's not a, good, you know, not a good witness, all right? We don't need a demon telling us who we are and what we're doing. And she kept doing this for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the Spirit, I command you, in the name of Yeshua the Christ, to come out of her, and it came out that very hour. So Paul, obviously, he has to get the miracles. He's commanding the Spirit. The Spirit comes out. The Spirit within her knew of Paul and announced you know, who he was. They're, they're telling this is who Paul is. Paul's response is the same response that Yeshua had when the demons were announcing who he was. All right, He told them to shut up, come out of them, you know, in the synagogue in Capernaum. So this demon obeys Paul. And here Luke is demonstrating Paul's authority over the fallen spirit world. And what we have here is Paul's exercising, like I said, the gift of miracles. He's defeating the python spirit, revealing that Yeshua is more powerful than Apollo. Now I see here a picture of Yahweh crushing the serpent's head. Just a picture of what's going on. So if the gift of miracles was the supernatural ability to cast out demons to have power over the evil spirits in the spirit world, and, as if it's true what I've been saying, that all gifts ended in AD 70, then if the gifts ended, wouldn't that mean that demonic possession ended also? Because would Yahweh remove the gift of miracles and leave us to deal with the evil spirits on our own? It's like, okay, I'm taking this gift now. The gifts are end, done in AD 70. But demonic world is still there and you've got to deal with it on your own. I don't think so. I think the gift was withdrawn because the demons were done. They were conquered by AD 70. Now, do we still need the gift of miracles to deal with demons today? There's many people, many churches still believe this gift is available. And you'll see people claiming to have it. I've never really seen any evidence of it. They claim to have it. And I've seen Urs Angeli, you know, on stage touch people and say, step back and, you know, come out thou unclean spirit. And he said they had the gift of the nicotine demon. See, the reason you smoke is because the nicotine demon's there and you got to get that demon out. And the de they had all kinds of demons. Uh, in Wynne Worley's book called The Diary of an Exorcist, he tells the story of a woman who's tormented by two different demons. One is the demon of oily hair and one is the demon of dry hair. I mean, seriously, they believe this. And the demons were taking place. You know, she'd try to treat her oily hair, and the demon of dry hair would show. Uh, this is just absolutely ridiculous, okay? But this is how, you know, they see a demon behind everything, and so they're saying this is what we need to do, all right? 
You know, it's interesting that we have no references to demon possession after the book of Acts. We don't have much reference to it in the latter half of the book of Acts. We have no reference whatsoever to demon possession in the epistles, not any of them. We have no reference in the Tanakh to demon possession either. I think demon possession was something that happened during the time of Christ on earth, during the transition period for the purpose of manifesting God's power over this demonic world. Now, what does the New Testament teach us about dealing with demons today? Nothing. Okay? Does it say, go find the person with the gift of miracles? You got a demon? Go get the gift of miracles. They'll take care of it. No. Well, a lot of people today would say, well, you need to plead the blood of Jesus. You know, like that's some magical incantation, and we just reduce Christianity to this hocus-pocus. You know, and the devil hears the word Jesus, which he probably wouldn't even know what it was because he didn't know him by that name. <laughs> or, the, or, or the blood, and, you know, they just, oh, no, not that, and they scream and run away. You know, it's just, it's nonsense, people. We see from the teaching of the Gospels that the demons are to be destroyed. We know that it's coming. They know it's coming. In Matthew 8, 28 and 29, it says, And when he came to the other side, to the country of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men met him, coming out of the tombs so fierce that no one could pass by that way. In other words, people knew these demons were there. They didn't go that way. And behold, they cried out, What have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? See, the demons understood the mission of Yeshua, part of which was to destroy them. And notice the words they say, before the time. Presumably the time of the judgment at the consummation of the ages. The destruction of Satan and demons was prophesied from the very beginning. Are you familiar with the term the proto-evangelum? What is that reference to? It's the first prophecy. It's Genesis 3.15. All right? It says, I will put enmity between you and the woman. This is right after the fall. Between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head, you shall bruise his heel. All right? This verse is called the Proto-Evangelum, the first gospel, because it's the Bible's first prediction of a Savior. This has also been called the mother prophecy of all prophecies in the Bible. It's a prophecy of Christ overcoming Satan. But what I want you to notice here is that Christ is going to suffer in this conflict. All right? And it says the serpent will bruise his heel. Now, a snake bite to the heel could be painful, right? It could be deadly. The text really doesn't tell us. We don't know from that. We learn from the rest of the scripture that the bite was deadly and Christ was killed. All right, He suffered in conflict, and he was crucified, but he rose from the dead. But the serpent was destroyed. It says, he will bruise your head. This is a mortal wound. So Christ is going to suffer in this conflict, but he's going to raise from the dead victoriously. And one of the aspects of his ministry was to destroy the devil. I think the scriptures are plain on this, but it, so many churches today especially charismatic, Pentecostal churches, you'll hear much more about Satan and demons than you will about Christ. All right? They're just everywhere. But look what the Scripture says, Hebrews 2.14. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself, referring to Christ, likewise partook of the same things. He took of flesh and blood. That through death, see, he had to die, he might destroy the one who has the power of death. That's the devil. The Greek word for destroy here, katargeo, it means to be Entirely idle, useless. Figuratively, to abolish, to cease, to destroy, do away with, make no effect, bring to naught. Now, we have to ask, was Christ successful in his mission? He came to destroy the works of the devil. Did he? Absolutely. But most Christians act like, no, he didn't. They're all worried about the devil. I really think a lot of people want him around because you have someone to blame. You know, I read one writer who was saying that you know, this, de- this demon can impersonate him. And this demon gets him in trouble by, you know, impersonates him and then he does something bad. And I'm like, no, nah, I like that story because when my wife's mad at me, that wasn't me. That's the demon, okay? That de- that's the demon me, not the real me, all right? 
I mean, there's all kinds of nonsense out there with us people. So much nonsense. All right. But I think we really like to keep the devil around so we can blame him for stuff, you know. But look at 1 John 3, 8. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. Now watch. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. The Greek word destroy is luo, means to loosen, destroy, dissolve, put off. Christ is said to have destroyed the devil and his works. Now, when did this happen? When did the judgment of the demons, the, the judgment of the gods take place? When did it happen? Well, the psalmist connects it to the resurrection and ascension of Christ. We see this in Psalm 82. Psalm 82 is talking about the divine council and the gods and their fall. He says, I said, you are gods. And he's speaking to the divine council, these watchers that have fallen, sons of the Most High, all of you, nevertheless, like men, you shall die and fall like any prince. You're sons of God, but you're going to die like a man, taking your immortality away. Well, when was this to happen? Well, the verse tells us this. Arise, O God, judge the earth, for you shall inherit the nations. Now, who is God here? Who is to judge the disobedient gods on the earth? Well, in the Septuagint, the word arise here is anistemi in the Greek. This is the term used every time for the resurrection. So the arise is the resurrection. The resurrected God is going to judge the earth. So Paul also connects this judgment of the gods to the resurrection and ascension. That he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his own right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule, authority, power, dominion, every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church. See, Christ in his resurrection and ascension at all things put under his feet. This is his dominion, his managerial ruling of all things. Peter also speaks of the preeminence of Yeshua, over the heavenly beings, he says, who has gone into heaven. He's at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers. Those are all terms for demonic beings being subject to him. So Yeshua rose from the grave. He ascended into heaven and he judged the gods. Does that fit your theological paradigm? So when were the gods judged? At the resurrection? Does that bother anybody? Cause any questions? We're all good with that? Well, I was hoping if you're thinking, you be, might be saying, well, if they were judged at the resurrection and ascension, then why does Paul tell the Ephesians 30 years later that they're in a spiritual battle? Ephesians 6.12 For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. These are all terms for gods, demonic beings. All right? Cosmic powers is cosmocreator. And that's interesting. We find it in other uses. It's, it's of divine beings. So Paul tells the Ephesian believers around 60 A.D. that they're in a spiritual battle with divine beings, but the gods were judged by Yeshua in the resurrection and ascension. Why are they still battling him 30 years later? Well, here's what we have to understand. The victory of Christ over the gods was won at Calvary in his death and ascension. But it wasn't consummated until the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70. Notice what Matthew tells us in Matthew 24, 29. Now, you know the context of Matthew 24. This is talking about the destruction of the temple. This is talking about the second coming. All right? So he says, immediately after the tribulation of those days, the three-and-a-half-year war that went on, the siege of Jerusalem, that was the tribulation. The sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from heaven, and the power of heavens will be shaken. Now, this is not talking about literal stars. The stars and the powers are the same spiritual terms, the cosmic powers, the spiritual forces of evil that Paul speaks about in Ephesians 6, 12. So we know this is speaking about AD 70 in the destruction of Jerusalem. So what began at Pentecost was completed at the Holocaust, the judgment of AD 70. That's when these gods were judged. These stars are falling from the sky. The powers of heaven are being destroyed. 
God is taking, destroying these beings. Now, in Hebrews 2.5, the author indirectly establishes rulership of their world by angelic beings. He says this in 2.5, For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, indicating their world was subject to angels, of which we are now speaking. All right? So their world was ruled by these entities, but the world to come in 8070, in the age to come, Satan and demons have been defeated. Romans 16.20, Paul tells the Romans, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Again, we come across this word soon and people are trained to think it doesn't mean that. It means thousands of years. No, it means soon. He's telling the Romans, he's going to crush him under your feet. Satan here is the Roman heavenly spirit who ruled over Rome and he was to be destroyed. God is saying the battle is soon over. Christ is victorious. And those gods who rebelled against Yahweh have been judged. Now, since Satan and his demons were destroyed at the end of the age, why would there be any need anymore for the gift of miracles? These gifts were important in the New Testament times. The apostles and disciples used them to cast out demons, and I believe the Bible teaches that all these spiritual gifts ended at A.D. 70. These powers were defeated. Now, I know I've heard some people talk about, well, the gods were defeated, but the demons were not. Well, the text we read in Matthew, the demons asked, why have you come here to destroy us before the time? Indicating the judgment. They knew the judgment was coming. They knew the time was coming. Now, I've got to tell you, again, I'm, I'm sticking with exegesis here, trying to draw this out of Scripture, not experience. Because if you want to argue from experience, I would have to say you got a good case of demonic possession today. Just look at Washington, D.C. Just look at our Senate. Okay? Just look at our Congress. I would, you know, okay, you got a good, strong case there. But I'm saying we can't base it on experience. All right? The Bible teaches the spiritual gifts ended, and one of the indications is there's no more demonic influence. We don't, we're not battling with that anymore. Uh, Revelation 20.10 says, And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire. When was this to happen? Well, by, the Revelation opens with soon, quickly. It closes with soon, shortly, quickly. The whole book was to happen soon. In the first century. So in the first century, he tells the believers then, the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire. It is over. It is done. He's toast. Those gods who rebelled have been judged and destroyed. Now, since Satan and his demons were destroyed at the end of the age, I just don't think there would be a need for spiritual gifts. They were needed then. They were important then because they were doing battle with these. And we could also ask the question this way. Since the gifts ended in AD 70, it makes sense that so did the spiritual war. The gods and demons were judged. They were destroyed. Now, the main thrust of the gift of miracles, to, again, to me, seems to be the casting out of demons, the conquering these demons. The gift of miracles or powers was a temporary gift. It was primarily the power to deal with the demonic world. It was a sign used to confirm the truth of God's message until the New Testament was finished, until the body was matured, until Christ returned in glory, bringing us into the everlasting kingdom. We don't deal with these today, people. And i got to share with you this story that, to me, had a big impact. I, I, we had a couple visiting the church, and Kathy and I went to dinner with them to explain to them what we believe, preterism. You know, that's always a great subject, you know, trying to tell people this. And, uh, you know, and I remember her, and the, I'm talking about it, and the gears are just turning, you know. So as soon as I stop talking, she goes... What's that mean about Satan and demons? I'm like, they're gone, they're toast, they're history. That bothered her. She did not like that. Christ came, that's okay. Demons are gone? No, I don't like that. So we just left it, all right? A couple months later, she came to me, and she goes, you know what? This teaching changed my life. And I said, how so? And she said, I'd always blamed all my problems on Satan and demons. If this was happening, it was a demonic influence. If this happened, Satan was doing it. You took that away. I had nobody to blame but myself. And so I worked on and fixed a lot of those problems. And I was like, wow, that's impressive, you know. And I never thought of it that I never 
when I was in the charismatic movement, I never remember blaming all my problems on Satan. It'd be nice to do, I guess, but I didn't. But here's a lady who said, okay, they're gone. I got to deal with my problem. And she did. And so again, you know, and a lot of people will argue, well, I've seen a demon where? Well, it was over in this third world country. And I'm like, so the demons just go to third world countries? They don't come to first world countries. Why is that? Well, we're too smart here. We don't believe it. You know, you got to go over there. They're more superstitious, so there they'll believe it. I, I don't understand it all, people, okay? But I believe, again, I, I'm basing my understanding here on the Scriptures. I think the Scriptures teach that Satan, the demonic world, was destroyed in AD 70, freeing us, all right? We're called to live for Christ. We're not in a spiritual battle. We're in a battle. We battle every day with the flesh, okay, and the world. But there, there is not demons trying to possess us. You know, Satan is not messing with us. That victory is won. We're citizens of the kingdom of God, and we're called to live in victory. Let's pray. Father, thank you this morning for the opportunity to look at your scriptures. Lord, I, I know there's many different opinions when it comes to the demonic world, Satan and his demons. I just pray you'd help us to be Bereans, Lord, and... Not take what we hear this morning and assume it's the truth, but to study the Scriptures and see if these things are so. Give us the heart of Bereans, Lord. May we dig, may we search to come to our own conclusions on what the Scripture says. Thank you, Lord, for the privilege to just get together and to study your Word together. We thank you for your grace to us. Amen. Okay, questions, comments. And don't any of you use your spouse as a reason to justify the existence of demons, okay? That's not, it's not, that's not cool. Um, Bob Cruikshank, by the way, he'll be speaking here next week. Um, he says, good observation on Acts 16, 16. He says, checked out David Bentley Hart's translation, and it says this, a slave girl who had a python spirit. That's just invisible in most other translations. It is, and that's the problem. We're reading translations, and we read over it, and we just miss a lot of the stuff that's there. I'll tell you, there's a lot of demons in the New Testament when you translate some of these words, and you see what's going on. And the same thing with the, you know, the... The Tanakh, there's a lot of instances of demons there. You know, that probably the horse leech has two daughters saying, give, give. You know, those are demonic words there. You know, there's, they're all through there. I just touched on that and some of his stuff that he's taught on. Any, any, Gary? Um, <clears throat> as God is, Yahweh is sovereign, and he closed Sarah's womb for years and then opened her womb late in life, but he allowed the Nephilim to go down and procreate. He did. <laughs> <laughs> Are you saying he could have stopped that? He could have stopped Absolutely that. he could have stopped that. All right, um, you know these. It you know it's it's mind blowing, and most people, you know, have a weird view of Genesis six. But what Genesis six is teaching is that God's left heaven to come down because they were attracted by the women. But we're not supposed to. Be. Yeah, we're not. I mean, yeah, that that's a battle that men have. So that proves that these gods were men. Okay, <laughs> you know, and, and they had a problem. They're looking at these women. They say they're beautiful. They're going down and marrying them, and then they're producing this offspring. And I believe the purpose of that was to corrupt the human race so the Savior could not come from that race. They're, they failed. And God brought the Savior into the world to redeem mankind. <laughs> Go ahead. <laughs> I don't have any problem with that at all as far as the demons, etc. But um, it's probably not, I don't know, it's maybe not, not for here, but um, had some discussions over the years about... Um, Good spirits, for example. I read a lot about what's going on in other countries and how people are saved, and I leave it out, mostly. So many have had visions and had dreams and described them. 
uh, the light, the Lord, how else are they going to find out about the truth if you know they don't run into a physical believer who's willing to share right. the light and life? Um, I just have a hard time not thinking that the Lord doesn't work in that way. But that's a different thing because that's probably... Well, again, I, we don't want to limit what the Lord can do or will do in any situation. You know, a lot of Muslims seem to have come to Christ. They said they had this dream. Lots. You know, I had a dream. I saw this. Okay. Again, that has nothing to do with what we're talking about here because we're talking about the spiritual gifts. That's not a spiritual gift. That is God opening people's minds to the truth of his gospel. You know, and that's, again, I don't think we understand this, but the new birth is miraculous. We are dead in trespasses and sins. God gives us life. As Now that we're alive, we believe the gospel. But that doesn't happen unless God gives life. And give, the giving of life is supernatural. So when God sent an evil spirit to torment Paul and the spirit to come to deceive Ahab and that kind of thing, these would be the Nephilim? Um, no, I think a lot of those are, they're gods. I mean, we see that in uh, 1 Kings 22. You know, you have the story there, and he goes, you know, God's in the council, and he goes, well, what are we going to do about this? And he goes, I'll be a lying spirit in the mouth of his prophets. Okay. And so God is one of the divine council members, comes down and is a, becomes a lying spirit in the mouth of the prophets so God can kill him. That was God's plan. So we see the divine council in action. So this is a good in guy that. lying. Yes. Okay, well, how about the evil spirit that upset Paul? An evil spirit sent from Yahweh. Right. So it's an evil spirit. Right. It's not a good spirit. Well, yeah, there we have that so too. That okay. Be them, maybe is that what you're talking about? These demonic spirits. Yes, that would that an evil spirit would fall into okay. that category, you know. But again, people are people are surprised who actually read the Bible, what they find in it. Well, that's the thing. Satan was a deceiver, you know. Um, I don't know. There's a lot of well, all the all the spirits, good or bad, were still subject to Yahweh. Absolutely. Okay. Uh, Mike Sullivan asks if the Great Commission is not fulfilled. Per is this from today, Mark? Yeah, I guess it is. If the, great, if the Great Commission is not fulfilled per Mark 16, then tongues and the casting out of demons continue. But of course, the Great Commission has been fulfilled and thus both gifts ceased at the same time. I would agree. He, he also says, is John MacArthur inconsistent to say tongues ceased in AD 70, but casting out of demons is still for today? Um, yeah, I, I think that, you know, I don't... You, you can't divide up and say, well, these gifts are gone, these gifts are still here. You know, you have to understand what was the purpose of the gifts and are some still here and are, you know. So MacArthur, I guess, still believes that, uh, you know, someone can still have the gift of miracles. Um, you know, if I want, if I, people put so much emphasis on tongues. If I could pick a spiritual gift, I would pick healing. You know, it breaks my heart when I see sick children suffering or, or anybody suffering and can you imagine having the gift of healing and you see you know a mother and they're dealing with their disabled child and you go over and you just lay your hands on there and boom and the child can you imagine hi i'm the lord sent me to i want to get your attention he wants you to serve him he wants you to love him when you heal their daughter i'm like that'd be the gift to have people if i'm getting a gift i want the gift of healing because you can i mean go in king's daughters and just empty the place you know, but today the people who claim to have get the healing, it just you know, yeah, it has to. You have to come to the arena to get it done, and it's it the miracles they heal of are like low back pain. You know, who's going to verify that? Sinus headache. You know, okay, I'm all better. I want to see a limb grow back. You know, I mean, they could do that, right? That man was sitting by that pool for 38 years, right? said, boom, get up and walk. Boom, it's done. He's walking, he's leaping, he's praising God. He didn't have to go to therapy to get his legs strengthened. 
<laughs> you know, it just got up and walked, all right? Anybody else? I'm sorry if I took away your demons, but... Uh, someone asked, is admonition against the game of a Ouija board being demonic overblown? Uh, yeah, I would say it is overblown, okay? I, I think, you know, they're, they're seeking, I don't, the idea of seeking for things like that, you know, the whole pretense there, though, is, you know, someone, some spirit's going to guide us and lead us, and, you know, the Bible speaks against that. Okay, so I don't think that's right, but I don't think there's, you know, your answers are not coming from demons, you know, because, again, I think they've been judged and dealt with. It's amazing what the church does with things, you know, Halloween, you know, that's a demonic holiday and most churches would stand against that, you know, don't go out, don't dress up, don't, you know. We used to dress up as Bible characters, you know, at the church and go, that was okay, and come to the church and, you know, get candy from that or whatever. You know, we... I don't know. I guess it's just a matter of personal opinion. Huh? (laughs) No. (laughs) Um, Chris asked, uh, could alleged demonic possession be similar to pseudosiesis in the same way you suggest tongue speaking could be? Yeah, I think it could be. And again, I think, you know, and and I use that example of pseudosiesis because it's such a powerful example of the power of the mind, okay? And I think if you're hanging with Christians who are all about demons and they got to see a demon everywhere, I think you'll start buying into that and you might even start seeing some demons, okay? Again, because the mind is a powerful thing. And I remember when I read that book, Diary of an Exorcist, you know, I'd be going outside to get in my car at night a little leery because, I mean, the demons were everywhere, according to them. Every, every bush, every doorknob had a demon behind it. It's quite a crazy book. But, yeah, I think it's, it's you know, people can, if you believe something strong enough, it can definitely affect you. 